Good afternoon. I'm Steve Monsma, a research fellow at the Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics here at Calvin College. I would like to welcome you to the January series 2008 of Calvin College. And I would like to begin today's session by leading all of us in a prayer. We thank you, Father God, for bringing us together this day to hear about the cause of religious freedom for all faiths in all parts of the world. We ask that the day may soon come when all persons are free to worship in keeping with your leading and their deepest convictions. We ask that you will be with us as our speaker, with our speaker today as he, as he shares crucial information and insights and with us as we listen and learn, so that from this lecture today, we will become better equipped, each in our own way, to be agents of change, bringing about a world of greater freedom and shalom. We ask this in the name of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now, Bill Stevenson, Professor of Political Science here at Calvin College, will introduce our guest. Chris Seipel is president of the Institute for Global Engagement. He earned his PhD at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy following a decade of service in the United States Marine Corps. Currently, he serves on the board of directors of Wycliffe Bible Translators, is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a member at the Council on Foreign Relations, and a member of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Britain. IGE is an organization that works to advance the cause of religious freedom through Christ-infused relational diplomacy. While traditional diplomacy operates in the realm of state-to-state -state relations through ambassadors who advance the interests of their king or president, Dr. Seipel says, relational diplomacy follows the example of Christ in John 4. If I'm into tr traditional diplomacy, I'm not talking to a woman in a patriarchal society. I'm not talking to a member of an ethnic group that I despise. But if you end into transforming hearts, you let God be bigger than your imagination, and you go to a double minority and engage. Thus, he says, as a follower of Christ, I'm obligated to try to find practical ways, however imperfect or incomplete they may be, to be an agent of God's grace to Christian and non-Christian alike. Following his lecture, Dr. Seipel will be available to greet members of the audience in the West Lobby of the Fine Arts Center. Calvin College is very grateful to the Richard and Helen DeVos Foundation for underwriting today's presentation. Please join me in welcoming Chris Seipel. Thanks, Bill. Good afternoon, Calvin. Good afternoon, Grand Rapids. Uh, I am grateful for the opportunity to speak with you today. I'm grateful for the leadership that Calvin has displayed, especially uh, President Biker and Christy Potter, who I know you all hold dearly, but is uh, remarkable in every sense of the word. And uh, this series is remarkable in every sense of the word. I, uh, I wish I could stay up here for <laughs> 10 straight days or whatever it is. Uh, this kind of exposure to the different spheres of life over which God is sovereign and already at work with or without us is exactly what we need to hear in America. And, and 
will essentially be the, the core of my message today. So I'm grateful to Calvin for its leadership, and I'm also grateful to Richard and Helen DeVos Foundation for sponsoring today. I basically have one recommendation for the next president, and that's simply this. He or she needs to be a catalyst to build and sustain communities of the willing to address the global and complex issues that we face right now. Communities of the willing, public and private, government and non-government, state and non-state. The issue, of course, is how do we do that? How do we develop communities of the willing such that there are relationships that transcend traditional state diplomacy and do things such as we do at IG, what we call relational diplomacy. More on that in a bit. That's the question that I would like to talk about. The interesting part about the question is that we're now amidst a presidential election, as some of you may be aware. <laughs> and it comes at a particular point in world history. And the world, particular point in world history is this. There aren't a lot of people that like us anymore. <laughs> That's not a political comment. That's a statement of fact. And I've traveled around the world quite a bit in the last seven years, and it just gets deeper and deeper, the angst and the uh, poor opinion that some folks have of us. We all know about that. We are also aware as Christians, and particularly as evangelicals, that sometimes we are perceived as political, strident, unforgiving. Uh, we really don't have a lot to do with Christ, so it seems, or at least that's how non-Christians, non-evangelicals might see us sometimes. Uh, in fact, in the Muslim world, which will be the focus of my conversation today with you as a way of illustrating and focusing what I think the next president and what we should do next, while I focus on that, in the Muslim world, they think that to be American is to be Christian, is to be evangelical, is to have the sword in one hand and the Bible in the other. Now, that's a little bit over-embellished, but not much, not much. The interesting part about the time that we live in is we think about stewarding American power and our American citizenship as ambassadors for the king, as a function of our faith. The interesting thing is that Americans are now beginning to understand that. For three years in a row now, a majority of Americans believe that the rest of the world views us unfavorably. In other words, it's getting through. 54% this past year understand that the rest of the world looks at us unfavorably. 37% uh, of Americans, and this is taken from Pew Research and from recent Gallup polls, 37% of Americans believe that our position in the world is not a good one and are uncomfortable with it and how people see us. And it should be no surprise that our current president has an approval rating of 30%, and the only thing worse than our president's approval rating is the Congress, 21%. I mean, think about that. 70 to 79% of Americans really aren't comfortable with the leadership at this point in history when most people don't like us that much. So this election's a big deal. This election is a big deal. We're going to be sending a signal to the rest of the world about what we think about our future and our role on the, on the stage. And we Christians are going to be sending a signal about how we steward this thing called, this precious gift called American citizenship. The good news in all this, though, is that 73% of Americans still think that um, we as a country should play a major or leading role in the world. A major or leading role in the world. What does that mean and what does that look like? How do we act as agents 
catalyst of communities of the willing that can address the complex issues that we now face. I think what that means is that we've got to think about who we are as a people. What is the essence of our identity? What is the essence of American power? And that's where I'm going to focus my comments uh, today. And basically what I'm going to try uh, and say is that I think religious freedom is the essence of who we are as a people, and that has very practical impact and effect. And in particular, I want to look at the issue of religion and reintroduction and reconciliation as lived out through our personal experiences at the Institute for Global Engagement and how that illustrates how we can engage the world. And I'll let you draw the conceptual lessons that can be applied to other spheres of life and other issues. So that's where I'm coming from. I've used the title Next President because it's primary season and you know maybe that's catchy or sexy or something. But the bottom line is we're all leaders. You're all Christian, maybe you're not all Christian, forgive me, but Christians in particular are called to excellence. And if you're excellent, you're going to attract and you're going to be responsible for the people and the things that you attract to you. These lessons are not only applicable to the next president, but should be applicable to us as leaders. The only thing that we know for sure about the 21st century is it's not just top-down stuff. It's just not the president of the United States or the president of China doing things. There's got to be bottom-up. So you need leaders who can articulate the kind of changes that I'm going to be describing and discussing, but you also need ordinary folks like you and me, followers who are leaders in our own context, who understand and have the same common worldview and understanding and perspective about how we do these things. So that's where I'm coming from today, and that's what I'd like to address. Um, before we do that, though, let me say this, a little bit about where I'm coming from. Uh, we're all prisoners of our own experience. We're all incarcerated in our various paradigms, whether we know it or not. And I want to share a little bit about the experiences that imprisoned me so you know where I'm coming from and see the strengths and weaknesses that are there. Uh, the Institute for Global Engagement has been around for seven years. We began a year before 9-11 uh, in September of 2000. We're basically a think tank with legs. If you're feeling less poetic, as I often do as a former Marine, it's a think and do tank. And the premise is you think before you do. <laughs> kind of simple. Uh, but we Americans aren't always like that. Usually it's fire, ready, aim. And we're trying to get back to <laughs> thinking before we do in a secular sense. And in a kingdom theology sense, we're trying to get back to the great commission before the great, the, the great commandment before the great commission. Learning how to love our neighbor in a language and logic that he or she understands before we go out. Because if you can't love, don't go. That's the kingdom theology that undergirds what we do. So we work on, for, on religious freedom. We do something we call relational diplomacy. That means that you're working simultaneously and transparently top-down and bottom-up. We're unabashedly Christian about our motivation. We are pluralistic in our means and ends. What we do is we work with governments at the highest level or as high as they'll let us in, and we say religious freedom is in your self-interest. This is why you should go about and, and allow for religious freedom. We also work with faith groups in the bottom up and with faith leaders uh, in the local context. Uh, if you're interested in what that looks like in a particular setting, I'm not going to talk about it today, but uh, the best example of how we do this is in Vietnam. And uh, we were on the cover story of Christianity Today of May of last year, and that kind of details what that looks like. And I'm happy to talk about it in the Q&A, but I'm really going to focus on uh, the Muslim thing. So that's what we do. We do religious freedom, and we try and have practical effect on the ground through local partners who actually live there, speak the language. But the other thing is we assume is you don't go before you 
think. Education has to precede engagement. You have to have a life of the mind, and I know that's very important here at Calvin. It's also very important in terms of who we are as Christians. Ambrose, the church father, said the most precious thing that you can give to your creator is your mind. He said that while he was reflecting on Deuteronomy 6.5. How do you love your God with all your heart and soul and mind? You've got to have a life of the mind. You have to think about the implications of what you do and how you do it as much as you can within the limited context of human understanding, but using that gift of reason. So what we do is two educational initiatives. One is called the Global Engagement Network, and that's designed to challenge and equip Christians about how they engage the world. Uh, we do an annual forum called the Global Leadership Forum, and we bring in different speakers, not unlike what you're doing here, and try to holistically expose Christians to other worldviews and opinions. Not to change their mind, but to help them make decisions better. So this last September, we did a Global Leadership Forum in Washington, and it was on stewarding our three citizenships, our kingdom citizenship, our global citizenship, and our American citizenship. And we had people like Natalie Albright and Michael Gerson come in and talk to the, the largely evangelical audience. It was phenomenal. It's online if you want to see it at globalchristian.org. But the most, most amazing part about it was that we had Muslim speakers come in and say, here's how we feel when we interact with Christians. Uh, it was just a remarkable conversation. So that's one thing that we do in terms of educating and equipping. The other thing that we do also is um, we set up a thing called the Council on Faith and International Affairs. Uh, we originally did this because we felt Christians uh, were not getting their voice out in the policy circles. Uh, I went to the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, which is the oldest, and they'll tell you the best school on international relations uh, in the country, set up in 1933 to equip how our diplomats engage the world. When I was there, I had, as a person of faith, who's passionate about international affairs, I had no place or reason or mechanism or vehicle to talk about religion. And then I went to my faith community and my church, and those kind of, there really wasn't a mechanism to talk about international affairs and the nitty-gritty of what policy should be in the northwest frontier province or in southeast uh, Asia. I thought, why do these things not come together? God's in both, but I can't talk, and I can't do so in a scholarly fashion that's accessible to both scholar and practitioner. So we started the Council on Faith and International Affairs. We soon discovered that Times were so desperate that God was using a former Marine leading an evangelical organization of eight people that we, were, we had to broaden that mechanism to include all faiths. So we now have a journal called the Review of Faith and International Affairs. It's the best journal in the field. It's the only journal in the field. <laughs> That's how desperate these times are. Think about that. Two different, very different worlds because we don't know how to talk about religion and politics. I'll come back to that in a moment. This issue is on evangelicals and a two-state solution in Israel-Palestine. You know, wishy-washy, easy stuff, talk about. Uh, and I encourage you to, to look at that. Uh, it's very important that we think through these things as we elect our next president. It's very important. It's a time of change. And as we think about these things, there are candidates of change, and then there are candidates of change. I'll let you decide who the flip-floppers are and who's the authentic voice. But this is all a function of stewarding your American citizenship if you consider yourself foremost a kingdom ambassador. And that's how I'm coming at this, and that's what we do. So I want to talk going right away to our conversation with the Muslim world. Um, this is 
Malana Bunari. He heads the largest madrasa in Peshawar. Peshawar is the capital of the Northwest Frontier Province in Pakistan. It is where Al-Qaeda was founded. It is where Taliban uh, have refuge, had refuge, have refuge, and continue to send folks. Um, when I was over there, this picture was taken in October 2005, uh, we had a very interesting conversation for the first time. And um, it, was a, it was a very powerful experience, and it really brought into, a lot of, in, into practical effect and relief many of the questions that I had been thinking about and writing about as we stood up the Institute for Global Engagement. Namely, what does it really mean to love my neighbor? Can I love this neighbor? Is this neighbor made in the image of God? This neighbor knows people who work for the enemies of my country. How do you go about doing that? What is American power? What is my role as a Christian here? How do I engage him on this issue? All these things are going through my head. At the same time, of course, you're having these outer body experiences like, where's Waldo? He's right there, and he's in the, having this conversation that you never would have thought possible, especially after 9-11. I certainly never thought that I would be in the Northwest Frontier Province. And it's an interesting story. We had somebody came up to us in, in fall of 2003, and they said to me, hey, how would you like to meet the Islamist party in Northwest Frontier Province? They were recently elected on a, a pro-Sharia and anti-American platform. <laughs> USA, right? <laughs> no, I don't want to go. I have no, Lord, I got no, I don't want to do any of this. And you know, as the Lord works, there's no such thing as once in a lifetime with God. He keeps hitting you over the head with a two by four. And, uh, you know, and frankly, there's no such thing as safety either. He calls you to be secure in his relationship with him. But he doesn't promise safety. So it became clear that we were supposed to engage. And uh, we had the chief minister of the Northwest Frontier Province over to the United States. Got to know him. And had some interesting conversations. And the first one went something like this. Why are you doing this, chief minister? Why are you an Islamist and a member of a freely elected party in the Northwest Frontier Province, we shouldn't forget that, Islamist, uh, why do you do what you do? And he said to me, uh, Chris, I know that someday I'm going to stand before my maker and be held accountable for the way I exercise power in the life that I led. I said, sir, we disagree on some things theologically, but that's something we can agree on. And let's find a way to work together. So he invited us back to Pakistan in October of 2005, and he's an amazing man, and, and it was just there, it was at that time when the earthquake hit, when 138,000 people were killed. In the middle of the crisis response that the chief minister was uh, coordinating, because it was his province that got hit, he signed an agreement with us to work on religious freedom holistically, and because of that agreement, I started meeting faith leaders in Northwest Frontier Province. After I got done with this conversation, one of the last things that the Milana said to me was this, and it was something I thought about for two years until I met him again, and I'll tell you what he meant by it when we get to that point. But he said, you know, you Americans want respect. We want tenderness. And this is the guy that's the head of the madrasa and also the head of the political party. Religion is politics in this part of the world. He said of the JUIF, if you're familiar with that. You Americans want respect. We want tenderness. What does that mean? 
And how do I love my neighbor? How do I think about my American citizenship? How do I exercise power here in this part of the world, just war or otherwise, where Americans are known for the next predator strike that takes out a wedding party in the search of Al-Qaeda leaders that often are not at those wedding parties? So, I'm the kind of guy that gets back to basics. If I don't understand basics, then I can't be doing anything else. Uh, I know this is a hard map to understand for you in the Midwest, but that's water on the eastern side. And this is a place called New England. Uh, it also happens to be where I moved to after I lived in Grand Rapids when I was one or two and uh, grew up in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Uh, like most Americans, I had no idea about the history of my own state and didn't really discover this until about six or seven years ago. Uh, as you probably know, Massachusetts was founded by pilgrims fleeing persecution and all those kinds of things that went on during the Thirty Years' War. Uh, religion was very much at the center of this, and they wanted a new life. They came, and what did they do? Pilgrims came first to Plymouth, and then John Winthrop came into Boston. John Winthrop, of course, uses Matthew, city on a hill. Ronald Reagan used later insert shining as the great communicator can. It's at his liberty. But it was a liberty uh, shining hill, and this was going to be the new world and the new Jerusalem. But in setting this up, John Winthrop was very particular. He wanted to have a government that had civil and ecclesiastical authority. That's a quote. In other words, it was a theocracy. It was a thing that we all, none of us want now in any other part of the world. That's what it was. Roger Williams comes over, uh, a guy trying to be a good Anglican, trying to stay in the fold of the church, but had a disagreement with this. And he lives in um, Plymouth for a while, for two years after coming to Boston, gets to know the Indians, has some relationships with them, then goes up to Salem. But the bottom line, he keeps pestering away at Winthrop, right? saying, I, I really can't subscribe to this thing because this is not my understanding of freedom of conscience as consistent with my understanding of what the author of life intended. Freedom. I have a right to choose how I worship, and I can't be told how to do that. Now, we can have our theological opinions about that and free will versus providence and predestination and all those kinds of things. But Roger Williams, at the end of the day, was going to get banished from Massachusetts. He's going to get kicked out of, of Massachusetts. And in the winter of 1635-1636, his friend, John Winthrop, came up to him and said, hey, we're kicking you out. You better hit the high road or you're going home on the next boat. It's interesting. Even despite differences, brothers in Christ could still talk to each other off the record, behind the scenes, away from the politics of the church. And so what, is, uh, what does Roger Williams do? He flees through the winter to Rhode Island. He renews the relationships that he had previously established. He did something crazy. He paid the Indians for their land, something the original settlers did not because it was theirs to take as a function of the colonial mandate. And he says, we're going we're to worship here however you want. Crazy. Religion, a reintroduction of the colonists to the Indian nations, international and then a reconciliation to have some sort of stability such that by the 17th century you had Indians, Quakers, Jews, Baptists, all worshiping in freedom. Our civil society, Thomas Jefferson's a part of it and all the founding fathers, our civil society comes from that moment. 
That's who we are as a people, I believe. That's the essence of American power. We've forgotten it. And I'll come back to that as well. In particular, now I realize that there's a spelling mistake here. This is not just a former Marine who doesn't know how to do PowerPoint. This is the original English from the Colonial Charter. And it reflects the first Colonial Charter in 1647 that Rhode Island set up. A lively experience where the civil state may best be maintained where there's religious freedom. And the basic premise is this. If somebody's allowed to practice their faith freely, they'll have more loyalty to the state as opposed to the state telling them what to do. This is religious freedom as a security issue, as a stability issue. Religious freedom as a counterterrorism issue. Not just the cornerstone of civil society where I demonstrate the best of gospel principles, which is love your neighbor and show him or her respect. This is who we are. This is the best of who we are. Now, we have trouble remembering that sometimes. Uh, this, in case you don't recognize it, and there's no reason you should, is the bow of the John F. Kennedy. Uh, it's an aircraft carrier on July 4th, 2000. And if you can see it, there are the, the trade towers. Halford McKinders, this um, dead white guy, was the subject of my dissertation. And um, I think he's pretty cool. But the, the um, quote here says it all. Democracy refuses to think strategically unless and until compelled to do so for purpose of defense. There are three honorees of 9-11. We were warned. 1993 is when the trade towers, they made their first attempt. And we chose to treat it as a terrorist legal issue, not as a national security issue, as a domestic issue. The second irony is that if the JFK, the carrier that you see here, the symbol of American power, of American heart power, if the JFK had been in the harbor that day, it wouldn't have stopped the attack. And the third, which is the one I want to focus on, is we were attacked by religious suicidals. Religion? What does religion have to do with international affairs? We all know our founding, maybe. I was, just, I was surprised to discover that Massachusetts was a theocracy once I went back and looked at it. But, you know, we pay lip service to that stuff. That stuff's not real. That's not practical. That's just, hey, that's who we are. Yeah, 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 let's get on with what you can do for me lately. That's what politics is about. And now religion's back in international affairs. Didn't we kill that off, so to speak, with the Thirty Years' War? Isn't that why the Treaty of Westphalia came into being in 1648? Here's the problem. There's two worldviews in how we think about life. This is how we've all been trained to think for the last 200 years or so, on the left side. It's a secular civil society where church and state are separated. That's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not preaching to bring them back together. But church and state are separated Amen and amen in the name of good governance. The casualty has been analysis. We don't know how to work religion into our analysis. We don't know how to account for a religious worldview. Think about the only two things that you've been taught not to talk about in polite company, assuming you Michigan people keep polite company. Religion and politics. 
The bummer of it is, is that our national security and global engagement exist exactly at their intersection. You've got to be able to hold both views at the same time. Or as F. Scott Fitzgerald said in 1936, uh, the test of first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. That's intelligence. That's the gift of the mind. We've lost our ability to function because we can't do this. And as an aside, as a Christian who happens to be an evangelical, how many of us live our faith the way on that left side? Right? Six-day secularists. Sunday's an event. I'll hold that off for, for later. You have to be able to allow for both. The thing that we have with engaging the Muslim worldview is that's their worldview right there. That is their worldview. God is at the center. God is sovereign. I wish you could meet my Muslim friends. The way that they take sovereignty of God is, 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 is awesome. That's how they see the world. The problem, of course, is this. We're not communicating with them. We're not communicating. Have you ever thought that a country like the United States, where 90% of its people believe in something greater than itself, themselves, 90% of our people believe in God or something like that, why is it that we can't communicate and engage the Muslim world, where at least 90% believe in God? It's all because our government and worldview is run this way where there's no place for religion in the analysis of the realpolitik. Our middle management of government, and I can swear to you this through multiple scars, is run by secular fundamentalists at the, at the middle level. They've been trained not to talk about religion and politics. So how could our diplomats be talking about that? How could we engage Muslims? The political godfather of my friend, the Chief Minister Durrani of Northwest Frontier Province, he met with an American ambassador for the first time in his 30, political, 30 years in politics this past September. We won't talk to him because they're religious. They're Islamists. They're the bad guy. Okay. But the thing is this. When we talk about winning the war on terror, which, by the way, is the dumbest thing we've ever come up with, how do you fight a tactic? We're in a war against specific terrorists. A war on terror allows all kinds of excess to happen because the, the term is not defined. But in the war against the terrorists, the war will be won on the ideological front and the theological front. Only good theology at the end of the day trumps bad theology. Now why do I show you this guy? This is my favorite Uzbek. Shepherd. This was taken the day before Easter in April of 04. Uh, and if you want to know what the center of gravity is in our fight against terrorism, it's this guy's mind holding that shortwave radio. That's it. That's what it looks like. He's the guy, if he doesn't have any alternative, he's going to end up on the Pak-Afghan border fighting for Al-Qaeda and Taliban. The new Al-Qaeda is Chechen, Uyghur, and Uzbek single men who have nothing to live for because they're coming from countries that don't offer them anything, where there's no religious freedom and where there's no proper theological training within Islam. What would you do if you were him? You live in Uzbekistan. It's not exactly a friendly climate. 
political climate that is. 60% of the people are in agriculture. Only 15% of the land is arable. Something has to give. Uzbekistan has no friends in the world because of their leadership. Something's got to give. There are 400,000 folks being born a year in uh, Uzbekistan. More mouths to feed. This is right at the heart of Eurasia. What would you do? How would you think about it? Are we engaged to win his mind? Are we setting up programs through Voice of America or finding ways to engage the Uzbeks? The answer is no. We're not. Our Voice of America programs are, are, and, and uh, magazines that we put out to engage the Muslim world are these glitzy things that are about American pop culture. This is beginning to change. I don't want to be too tough on our government. But we've just engaged uh, in a totally bass-ackwards way, to use a theological construct. Okay. So, if religion is part of the issue and part of the problem, maybe, just maybe, religion can be a part of the solution. Now I want to come back to Pakistan. Back to the Malana, uh, Benari. Uh, I saw, I've been there three times in the last two years, and uh, I went and saw him again last time when I was there in May. I said, you know, I've been thinking about what you said to me as I left for 18 months now. Uh, I, I want you to tell me what you really meant. Tell me, I can think of what you meant, but that doesn't mean anything. Tell me what you meant. What do you mean when you say you Americans want respect and we want tenderness? And his basic line was this, we know you're a great power. We know what great powers do. We know that you're going to have a say in our internal affairs whether we like it or not. That's what great powers do. But be nice as you do it. <laughs> that was his comment. Show us some tenderness. Show us some respect. Demonstrate that we have dignity by your willingness to listen and understand our culture. This is not some touchy-feely thing, by the way. A, I'm kind of incapable of that as a Marine. But B, he's coming at this from a, a real-world geopolitical view. When we supported the Mujahideen against the Soviets from 19-whatever, 79 to 1989, what did we do in 89? We just left. There were six million Afghan refugees in Peshawar alone that overwhelmed their education and their social and their health networks. That's what great powers do, right? We accomplished our political hard power purpose, and then we left. Now, again, I'm not trying to second guess or point fingers, but you have to engage the world as it is. If you don't do that, then you're always going to come up with the wrong solution. But religion is not a panacea, and nor is it a boogeyman. If it's part of the problem, it has to be part of the solution, and we can engage according to the best of who we are as Americans, according to our history that goes back to Rhode Island. Religion can encourage dialogue, can encourage understanding, encourage respect if you let it. In fact, as we think about reintroduction and reintroducing ourselves to the world, we are called to understand and engage the world as it actually exists, where religion plays one role and, and, and suffuses all the different spheres of life. We're not trained to think this way as Americans, but we should think this way as Christians. 
and it's certainly how Muslims think. Now let me walk you through this slide because this is the world according to disciple in one slide. I know you're excited about this. So the right side is all the issues that we face in the world today. They have two common characteristics if you're not a person of faith and a third if you're a Christian. The first characteristic is there's no single state or non-state actor that can address any of these by themselves, not even the mighty Department of Defense. The second characteristic is it's not a question, therefore, of if you're going to partner in addressing complex issues, it's when you're going to partner. You're going to be working with those players in the Venn diagram whether you like it or not, and if you don't know they're there, shame on you for your ignorance. You have to engage across spheres and across sectors of society if you seek to have any kind of enduring impact. And this is my recommendation to the president or any leader. You've got to operate at the nexus of that Venn diagram. You have to be a catalyst for communities of the willing, state and non-state government and non-government, public and private, to bring these things together to tackle these things right here. There's no way to do it unless you work together and unless you're willing to listen and learn and do the heart of religious freedom, which is respect, so you can reintroduce yourself and move past stereotypes and engage and reconcile spheres and issues, but also national identities and state identities. The process of partnership takes place from collaboration, which is tactical, naked self-interest, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, all the way through coordination where there's legal expectations and there's a expectation and, and norms, memorandum of understanding and those kinds of things. And as you do so, the most important thing to understand is that bottom parenthetical, which is a mantra for us, first understand, then engage. First know how to love, and then go forth. One brief example from Asia. When we first started engaging in Vietnam, I had a senior uh, officer from the, uh, from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and he came up to us after the first day of meeting. He says, you're the first Americans not to give me a list and tell me what to do. And I said, I'm sorry. That doesn't excuse how your country's treated Christians, by the way but it doesn't excuse how we've treated you personally. People want to be respected. People want to be listened to. This is, this is not rocket science. But we have not done this as a nation, and we are viewed as arrogant without the capacity to listen. So if you're going to be in the reintroduction business, what we have found is that you've got to start with self-interest before you move into values and then you move into agreements. This is a group of scholars that we brought together um, at Lake Issaquil, which is about three hours east of Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan. And what you see there are the leading experts on international affairs and religion from four of the five Central Asian countries the leading experts from China, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and the leading experts from Russia. And we're talking about religion and international affairs. Now, another sad metric, this kind of conference has never taken place before. The comment from the senior guy from China said, I've been to so many conferences and I've with these participants, with these countries represented, and I've never talked about religion. How could you not talk about religion if you're engaging Central Asia, which is the feeder for terrorism? 
are a feeder for terrorism. And what do you say when you have these conversations? How do you convince these folks to think about it? And you should be aware too, if you're trained in international relations as I am, and as these people are, there's no place in your world for religion. It's not an analytical factor. That's a cultural thing, that's something we don't do. And they're all, most of them are communist or former communist. So you're twice removed from reality. You're a communist who has no place for religion, according to doctrine, and Karl Marx, etc., and then you're trained in international affairs, nothing against international affairs professors out in the audience, but traditional international affairs have not been trained to account for religion. So you're starting twice removed from reality in a deep hole, and you're trying to create a space where we can say religion can be a part of the solution if you let it. Minority faiths will contribute to social stability if you let them. They will alleviate financial burdens on the state if you let them look after the least and the lost and the last and the homeless and the orphan and the poor. They'll pay taxes. They'll be good citizens. And most of all, as these, most of these countries transition into market economies, they'll act as a moral bulwark against corruption. I've had Chinese and communist officials say to me, we need the Christians and we need the faith because we have a corruption problem that's so crazy we don't know what to do with it. So you harness their self-interest. You say, we need to find ways to talk about this. And you smart people from throughout Eurasia, you've got to find ways to start articulating this because you're the advisors. The politicians are only as good as their talking points. And the politicians, to be fair to them, are going through on-the-job training with religion and international affairs just like we are. We have to be smarter. We have to make this advice available. And once you get past common self-interest, maybe you can begin to get into common values. I love this picture because they're all dear friends of mine, except the woman in the middle. She was the curator. This is taken in... Um, this is a curator of a museum in, in Gushetia in the Northern Caucasus where we took a field group to study the pros and cons of dealing with religion in Chechnya. In Gushetia is right across the border, just north of Chechnya. The woman on the left is Martha Brill Olcott. She's the, America's number one Central Asia expert. In her own words, she's a quasi-practicing secular Jew. I don't know what that means, but we always have good conversations, and uh, I respect the heck out of her. She works at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Next to her is Wang Hong. She works for the Institute of Ethnic Minority Groups at the State Council in China. She's atheistic. She has to be. But she's interested in this stuff. She knows that she has a problem in her western borders uh, with extremism, as all countries do. And extremism is coming out of Central Asia. How do you deal with that? Zeno in the black shirt. Zeno Baran, Sufi background, top scholar at the Hudson Institute. And then Pauletta Otis, Christian top anthropologist from the Marine Corps University in Quantico. And so you have, the, you have women in security, which is awesome, because most of these societies are patriarchal, and they've never encountered a woman who can speak with authority, and it's just fun to watch. And they're respected because of their knowledge. But then you get into issues like, well, what about our kids, which happens with mothers? And what about the values that we share together as women doing professional things, and women in academia? And this creates a different kind of ripple effect as you seek to influence and change mindsets. Now the last part about religious freedom, remember we've talked about religion as part of the problem moving into 
part of the solution because we're trying to reintroduce ourselves according to the best of our faith and the respect and those kinds of lessons that we learned from the Rhode Island Colonial Charter of 1663. But the amazing thing about Christ as you read the Gospels is that the, the principles he lays out, like at John 4, like love your neighbor, those principles are amazing because they're also practical. They work in the most difficult places. And if my faith isn't real in the northwest frontier province of Pakistan, why in the world would I dare to practice it in the Christian kumbaya cocoon of suburban America? It has to be relevant in both places. This is a conference we did this May on peace and religion. It's the first conference in the history of the northwest frontier province that brought together the minority face of that region. If you don't know, Northwest Frontier Province is 99% conservative Pashtun Muslim. And they're Pashtun first. As one of my friends said to me, we've been Pashtun for 3,000 years, Muslims for 1,400 years, and Pakistanis for 60. Think that one through. That's the kind of thing you have to do if you're gonna listen and understand before you engage. But we had a conference in Peshawar uh, last May and uh, it was marked by the fact that Sikh, Hindu, Shia, and Christian were allowed to participate. In the audience were the top 40 imams from the province. Not all of them educated. In the leading, there's three universities in the province and we had all the student leaders there. You know what the metric of success was? Is that when the Shia and the Sikh and the Hindu and the Christian spoke to their fellow Pakistani brothers and imams, they all took twice their podium time. <laughs> it's the first time they were ever allowed to share that their faith is not a threat to them. All the minorities live in fear. They don't know what they're going to, the Pashtun culture is going to do. The Pashtun people are an amazing, hospitable people. But there are different dynamics that are at play between old Al-Qaeda and new Al-Qaeda, old Taliban and new Taliban, and you're not quite sure what new Al-Qaeda and new Taliban are going to do and a lot of them are sawing people's heads off, and minorities are living in fear. And they were given a space under the auspices of Chief Minister Durrani to share that they were brothers in humanity and fellow Pakistanis and just as proud of their country and their province as the Pashtuns. That only came about because we invested two years in relationships to have that conference. Did you hear about that in the news? No. Here's something else you probably didn't hear about. If you can see this, this is the cornerstone for a church at Peshawar University. Pakistan is an Islamic republic. It's against the law to build a church. There was a church from Peshawar University from the British Raj and it had fallen into disrepair. And Chief Minister Durrani, our friend that we built these relationships with, pro-Sharia, anti-American officially. In December 19, 2006, he went and laid the cornerstone to refurbish this church at Peshawar University at a state-run university that was Islamic. And then he put $50,000 in government money down to make sure that church got rebuilt. Did you hear that story in the press? And when the Sharia courts reviewed it, 
they let it go because it was the chief minister who did it. Christians are 100,000 people in Northwest Frontier Province, 0.04% of 20 million Pashtuns. Do you think this sent a signal about respect? Unprecedented precedent. If you take your faith seriously and dare to live it out on the cruel edges of the world, you can reintroduce yourself as a Christian who happens to be American and then have practical impact because you are reconciled to your neighbor whom you are called to love in a language and logic that they understand. It ain't easy. And the metrics are going to be weird. But it is possible. Now I want to conclude by saying, just in case you thought I was some touchy-feely Christian guy going out there in Kumbaya and then trying to find trees to hug. This is not anything new. It's not new according to the history of the United States of America. It is not true, new according to Scripture. But I also want you to know that this is not new according to classic art and science of grand strategy in terms of how great powers engage the world and the thought that is out there and the body of knowledge that is out there that informs how great powers do this and act on a global stage. Liddell Hart, he's a British strategist. If you're at a war, you're always thinking about the peace that you seek. And the peace must be something that allows for the hard power of fighting and winning the combat, but also the aftermath. We have some experience with this right now. Hard and soft power are reconciled together. It's, it makes sense. Robert Gates, does everybody know who Robert Gates is? He's our Secretary of Defense. The Secretary of Defense is saying the same exact thing that Liddell Hart said and is saying the same exact thing that Roger Williams said. Military success is not sufficient to win. A rule of law, promoting reconciliation, governance, and basic services to people. They go together, this hard and soft power thing. And the ability to be in a place to do these things, you have to be in relationship to the people who actually live there. You have to show them respect. You have to listen and understand their culture and then find ways to come alongside the good leaders that are already there. Some of them are Christian. Some of them will not be Christian. And you have to be comfortable with that too. Isaiah 45 and Cyrus. God will use whom he wants to for his purpose. And then just a quote in American because we got thrown one of those guys in. Chuck Hagel said this at the Council of Foreign Relations in um, May of this year. Great nations engage. Great nations engage because they believe in who they are. They engage because they are strong. They engage because they are secure in their beliefs. They know who they are and they're not threatened by other alternative views because they're strong in their identity. And we are strong in our identity because of what took place in Rhode Island. That is who we are. We show respect for our neighbor, we're comfortable in our own faith, and we're not threatened by other people and other views. In fact, we celebrate those other views and express uh, respect for them because they're also made in the image of God. This is my last slide. And I want to say something particular to the students here. I mean, we're all students, but for the students who are paying tuition at a college called Calvin. 
Christians are presupposed and prepositioned to have impact in this world. We are now living in a global age. Christ invented globalization with go ye. This is what was intended and how it's been thought about from the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. A holistic understanding of how things relate to one another. And all those players are going to be there. You're presupposed because if you have a kingdom theology, you think holistically and you think that God is sovereign and you know that God is sovereign and you know that he's there. And the question you have to ask yourself is not what would Jesus do? It's an important question. But it's sometimes a question for people who have too much time on their hands in an affluent society. I've never met anybody in the developing world who asked what would Jesus do? What is Jesus doing? And how can I come alongside that? That is the precious gift that we're called to. But do not go and try to help out with what Jesus is doing unless you have first learned how to love. If you can't love, don't go. But the call is great. The time is great. And we're at a very interesting point in American history and global history. People still respect America. Americans still think they ought to be engaged in the world but we've never been thought of more poorly by non-Americans. This is the time to reclaim the very best of who we are as a state that allows for religious freedom, a state that allows for religious freedom precisely because of the Christian values that were present when it was founded. Thank you. Uh, we do have just a couple of minutes for questions. Uh, there are a couple of microphones here if people would uh, be inclined to ask a question. Uh, this is about access. What type of access does the Religious Advisory Council have to the President? How frequently and what type of access? The Religious Advisory Council? The Re Religious Advisory Committee. Of? It, it said on, on your description that you serve on that committee. I'm on, the, I'm on the Religious Advisory Committee to the President of the Council on Foreign Relations, not the President, okay. Big Daddy, <laughs> W. Uh, so your question was about access and how to the, do you mean our own government or into closed societies? To ours. Uh, we have pretty good access. Um, you know, when Chief Minister Durrani came, we got a meetings with the National Security Council, the State Department, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, every, whenever we go into a country like Vietnam or Pakistan, we don't go preaching religious platitudes or Universal Declaration of Human Rights and Article 18 and Freedom of Conscience. What we try to demonstrate is if, you work, if we work together, we will find ways to make you look good in your own country and give you the access to influence. So in some ways, in a political science speak, there's track one and track two, track one state to state, track two people to people. We're like track one and a half because we're people to people officially but we have access at very high levels on uh, the track one side, and we can get those meetings and set them up. So that actually allows us to leverage, as a small Christian NGO, our impact in a foreign country because 
those foreign people will have access themselves that they otherwise would not have had. And I would also say back to the council, the, we're also shaping center-left, center, center-right think tanks who've never talked about religion. The Council on Foreign Relations is now going to have a whole part of its website on religion uh, international affairs. It's not just because of me and IGE, but we've been with it since the beginning because we were one of the very few people and organizations thinking about it and talking about it. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, one more question. Um, one. Am I on? Yeah. I'm wondering if uh, our present conception of a separation of church and state in this country has not hindered us from thinking more along these lines. I'm wondering if you can make a comment on that. Yeah. Uh, the perception is this, that Bush views himself as a religious leader with access to God. And many of Bush's quotes get misinterpreted. You know, like the quote about the Iraq War where he said, I listened to it. Do you listen to your father, George Herbert Walker Bush, and President W. Bush said, I listened to a different father? Those are the things that get played again and again and again. And uh, that's not what the president meant. I understood it, but they didn't. When, you know, he apologized immediately. When President Bush said crusade at the very beginning, that's still the first thing out of a mullah's mouth in Pakistan. Still. And the, for, there's, not, there's not much room for forgiveness when it seems like all we do is beat up Afghanistan, beat up Iraq, and we're always my Israel right or wrong in the Middle East. So it's a perception thing, and it's very difficult to overcome. And the only way to overcome it is to be very clear in how we articulate the very best of our faith such that it is understood and relevant to them. We have a program, and I didn't show this, by the way, because it's not, I don't want it getting out because if their pictures were seen, then they might be in trouble. But we have a program of about uh, 16 to 20 students in Banu. Banu is in the southwest corner of the northwest frontier province on the border with Waziristan. We actually have two cohorts of students that we're funding. And what we've done there in terms of religious freedom, right, we're not using words like democracy and human rights and religious freedom because that has the guise of American empire and you just want influence over me. But we went in there, we had these relationships, and we're paying for their education in a part of the world where 40% of the country, that region, lives below the poverty line. There's a 26% literacy rate and 3% literacy rate among women. And we're saying, we love you so much and unconditionally, we're going to pay for 45 to 75% of each student's tuition. Our only stipulation is that you include women and minorities, Christian, there's one Christian in out of 20 because the, the percentages are so small. And we ask that you have a course among your students about tolerance. And we call that the Ummah in global society. The Ummah is an, an Arabic word for the worldwide body of Muslim believers, not unlike body of Christ in the global communion. So they have their words and their understanding. They respect us for who we are because we're trying to serve them and a different signal is sent. And I think that's the way you overcome the basic perceptions that come across on CNN and Fox. And let me tell you something, I don't care where you are politically, left or right, CNN or Fox, <laughs> it is the worst news coverage of international things that is out there. there, there nuance does not exist. There are notable exceptions in some reporters. 
But that hurts us more than anything because they keep playing the same thing over and over again and confirm that, you know, all Americans are Christian and evangelical and, and losers. <laughs> and we need smart, articulate, nuanced Christian and evangelical voices saying, I look at every opportunity out there as a chance and a dare to love. It's not what you do if God is sovereign. It's how you do it. And to take advantage of the gifts and skills he's given you to do something in a way that reflects the glory of God. Thanks. Thank you so much for coming.